0: Welcome. I'm Warner Deschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with June Manning Thomas on July 5th, 2022. June is the Centennial Professor Emerita of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, where she's also the Mary Frances Berry Distinguished University Professor Emerita of Urban Planning. She was one of the first black teenagers to break the segregated white high school in her hometown starting in the 10th grade. She describes how difficult and traumatic that experience was for her. I started the interview by asking June where she grew up and what was spiritual life like growing up.
1: I grew up in Orangeburg, South Carolina, which is in the middle of the state. And I grew up in a family that belonged to what was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church. It's now called the United Methodist Church. My grandfather was a Methodist minister. My father was also ordained, although... For most of my childhood and most of my um, life, actually, he worked in higher education.
0: He was ordained, but he never ended up being a minister.
1: Oh, he was, but he went back and forth. First, he was on the faculty teaching theology and assistant chaplain at Claflin University, what is now Claflin University, and then he became a full-time minister in Charleston, Mm -hmm. for three or four years and then he was called back to become president of that university, which was Methodist Episcopal. And then when he retired, he went back to the ministry for a few years. So, he was Mm -hmm. seesawing.
0: June, why don't you describe for us your spiritual journey that led you to becoming a
1: Baha'i? Yeah, so there were a couple of challenges with my Growing up years, one was simple curiosity that my parents and my minister and my Sunday school teachers could not answer some questions that I had, particularly about parables in the Bible and stories about people that lived an abnormally long time or Jonah who was swallowed by a whale and other stories like that. So I always had many questions about what we were learning about the Bible. So that was, was one thing that I actually probably kept pretty hidden as a series of concerns because I didn't want to embarrass my dad, my mom, and my grandparents. And then the other conundrum growing up at that time was that the Christian community was split by race and there were white churches and black churches, and we were in the middle of a civil rights movement. And part of that was confronting the white Christians who were not acting like true Christians. So that was bothersome. And so that was also a conundrum. So I had these doubts and questions throughout my teenage years. And I was searching and I didn't even know I was searching until I found a faith, the Baha'i Faith, that answered some of my theological questions, but it also resolved some of my own concerns about racial disunity.
0: How was it that you actually discovered the Baha'i Faith?
1: The Baha'i Faith was fairly small. In Orangeburg, South Carolina. So, this would have been in the 1960s. But there were Baha'i communities established, especially in Columbia and Greenville and Charleston. There were some people in Greenville who came to South Carolina State University, it was then South Carolina State College. And I met a Baha'i who was a member of the faith when I was in 12th grade, and he introduced me to. Baha'is in Greenville and told me about the Baha'i faith as well as Baha'is in Michigan.
0: What was the message about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to want to investigate it?
1: Yeah, so I actually have a reading from my latest book later on that the one I picked talks about that. But Mm. basically, I had just finished a period of extraordinary racial harassment as one of the first children to integrate the white public school system, and it was very disconcerting to consider that many of these tormentors were Christians. And so what really attracted me was that this was a faith that actually lived as well as taught the principle of the equality of all humankind, not just in terms of races, but in terms of ethnicity or nationality. But I was also very impressed when I think I was probably about 19 or 20. I'd been going to several Baha'i meetings over a couple of years, and I understood the Baha'i teachings on racial unity. I'd begun to understand those somewhat. But still, that didn't seem like a great reason to join a religion. But I was sitting in a fireside the summer of, I think it was 1970, and this woman Joy Earl was giving the fireside, and she was talking about the soul and what happens to the soul after death. And that was one of the questions that I had had since I was 12 or 13. Why is it that I don't quite understand what I'm being taught about heaven and hell and so she explained this wonderful analogy of the child in the womb and how death is like coming into another world the way the child is born and there was something about that that just clicked so it was the racial unity teachings that first attracted me but it was the teachings about life and death that finally began to win me over.
0: What were your parents' reaction to you getting interested in the Baha'i Faith and becoming a Baha'i?
1: Yeah, their reactions were mixed. My father, who was the actual minister, was more tolerant than my mom. My mom had a really hard time understanding, and I'm not sure she ever did accept this different faith but what helped make visits livable mm-hmm. is first of all they were extremely wonderful people wonderful polite hospitable and basically the conversation hardly ever came up the second thing was they absolutely adored my husband and they and he was a Baha'i when I married him and he could do no wrong. My sister and I, we used to get together and say that he was the favorite child and we were kind of like the stepchildren (laughs) because they so adored him. Mm. And then the third was our son went to Morehouse, which is not far. It's in Atlanta, not far from Orangeburg, and spent many a holiday with my parents. It was only a four-hour drive from Atlanta to Orangeburg, and they also adored him. And he was a very strong Baha'i. So I think just the natural goodness of their hearts and the example of my husband and my son helped to allay the concerns that they had.
0: June, you are a uh, Centennial Professor Emerita of urban and regional planning at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. How did you get into urban planning?
1: My life as an urban planner may have begun in childhood because what we used to do to get away from Jim Crow segregation in Central South Carolina is we would take occasional family visits to Miami, Florida, where my other grandparents lived. I had one set in South Carolina and one set in Miami, Florida. Or we would go to Atlanta. And somehow, cities became associated in my mind with freedom, because it really was freedom. I mean, we actually could go into hamburger joints, or, you know, go into Pasco's, a really nice restaurant, and Atlanta, but other places as well. And cities just seemed to be a safe refuge from my very small town, which was quite married to colored and white signs. So that was one thing. And then when I, I came up to Michigan to go to university, I became enchanted by the courses in urban sociology that talked about the nature of communities and cities. And it seemed like a wonderful way to marry my interests in cities with my interest in racial justice, because one of the things that attracted me was the fact that, of course, cities and racial separation were topics that were very much part of urban planning. So I saw myself as going into a field that would allow me to pursue my passion of understanding cities, but also would allow me to address issues such as racial injustice.
0: June, you and another member of Taubman College, her name is Christine Huang, you two contributed pieces to a recent planning theory and practice symposium, I guess it's called Rethinking Religion and Secularism in Urban Planning. It's an interesting combination. What was this symposium about?
1: So one of the problems that urban planning faces is a denial of the role of spirituality. And the profession itself sees itself as secular, which it is in some ways and in other ways it is not, because in some very subtle ways, it actually favors dominant religions or ethos. And so there's a very small portion of scholars in urban planning who've begun to think about this, and they have begun to write about this. And there have been occasional articles that have come together, but usually it's when several of us group together and pretty much take over a journal a special issue because it's not necessarily part of the common parlance of urban planning. In this case, I knew some of the people that were putting together the special issue, and Christine was my graduate assistant for a summer. I hired her for some of the research that I was doing on South Carolina, actually, And I knew that she was writing her dissertation on the uh, Catholic parishes of Detroit and how they they began to be a part of the white suburbanization movement and they closed down parishes in Central City, Detroit. And so I knew that she was another person. So I recommended her as an author. She's an all-but-dissertation Uh, doctoral student. So it was several of us, I think there were seven, eight, nine of us who were putting together just short essays on what we saw as the role of religion or spirituality in the field of urban planning.
0: Each contributor had an example of how religion played a factor in the development of an urban area.
1: Yeah, or in the development of urban planning as a profession. I actually took the advantage of being slightly autobiographical in my essay, and I actually did write about how the Baha'i faith had helped me to overcome the disadvantages of my background and to start to think about how we could overcome racial disunity in places such as cities and also how that helped me grow as a spiritual being. And they allowed that. This was something that would not normally have been published in an urban planning journal, although we went back and forth quite a few times with editorial changes. In the end, they did accept it. And it's probably one of the few pieces where I was able to talk frankly about the Baha'i faith in a professional urban planning publication. We were edited by one of the top planning theorists in the field, John Forrester, and also a young man that is very interested in particular in the the role of Islam in urban planning.
0: Would you say that urban planning can be influenced by unconscious biases?
1: Oh, definitely. Yes, of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, I think the connection between urban planning and bias, such as against certain classes of people or certain races of people, has traditionally been thought of in terms of displacement such as with urban renewal programs or with gentrification. I think the profession has worked to overcome some of the most heinous actions of that type. But the problem is that implicit bias continues in terms of, for example, support for the zoning and land use regulation of suburban subdivisions. So In the process of helping some communities to become gated or exclusionary by income class, for example, they end up becoming um, tools of policymakers who are acting out their own class or racial biases. And that's, that's what a lot of us have been trying to point out to our students and also point out in our writings.
0: June, you wrote a book called Redevelopment and Race, Planning a Finer City in post Detroit. So what inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, I was from South Carolina. I grew up thinking that the North was the promised land, <laughs> mm-hmm. that this would be a place that you could come to and the racial prejudice would not be as strong. And... It, it was true that it wasn't, but it was just different. And then I also, I came up and I married into a pretty large Detroit family. When I married my husband, Richard, he had five brothers and sisters and they had children. And it was a pretty firmly entrenched family in terms of the landscape of Detroit. and. I became very disturbed by the conditions that these relatives lived in. For example, there was one niece who lived in a townhouse development that was located next to vacant lots that were cleared for urban renewal, but they had never been redeveloped. So this niece had to walk to school walking past these fields of weeds and grass and derelict cars and very dangerous places because of a faltered redevelopment process. And I became very, very concerned about that and about my mother-in-law's neighborhood and what was happening in Detroit. And so I started this book as a way of investigating the role of urban planning and perpetuating the creation of these conditions, these living conditions that face the Black community. I wrote this book actually starting with the public housing program. My husband's family had been one of the first to move into the first public housing that was built in the 30s in Detroit, and I, I went all the way up to the 90s explicitly drawing a linkage between the actions of urban planning, the overt actions of urban planners, and the degradation of community life for black people living in Detroit. It's still pretty much the standard textbook that looks at the connection between urban planning and racial oppression in that city. There are other books that are more well known that look at racial prejudice in general, but the specific connection with urban planning was not so widely written about and this is one of the few books that does that.
0: What conclusions do readers find when they read this book?
1: The purpose of the book is to help in particular planners to understand the potential negative effects of their actions without a full understanding of the perniciousness of racial oppression. So I wrote it with my own students in mind so that urban planning professionals could be more careful in their actions. But a lot of other people have read it as well, and I think they see it as a clarification of some of the ways that the physical environment of the city of Detroit was influenced by political action as well as by professional action in ways that were to the disadvantage of the black community. And so it's part of that genre that we might call anti-black racism, except it was institutional. And so helping people to understand that, I think, is part of what the worldwide governing body of the Baha'i faith calls social transformation. It's part of public discourse in terms of looking at racial injustice and helping people to think through what would need to happen to bring about true justice for a people that have been much maligned.
0: June you wrote the book struggling to learn an intimate history of school desegregation in South Carolina which seems to be a departure from your urban planning work what inspired you to write this book
1: so that book was set aside for many years that's the <laughs> book. i started writing it i can't even remember It may have been the 1990s, but I suspect it was actually the 1980s. I would write little snippets of the experience that some of us had of desegregating the white public schools. For many years, I thought I would write basically a memoir of those years. Well, that became less and less attractive, as I saw there were quite a few memoirs about that period. And it seemed a little self-centered to do that. And so what I wanted to do instead was to explore the background to that period. Like what led up to that period? How did black people, for example, educate their children before school desegregation? And what was the effect of racial oppression on their efforts? So I chose to use the lens of my hometown, Orangeburg, South Carolina, and to explore these themes from 1869 until 2020, pretty much, but with uh, due attention to Black community resilience. Community resilience, that's a term I explained in the introduction, is a term that, this worldwide governing body, the Universal House of Justice, uses to talk about how communities can, under the yoke of oppression, still exemplify high values. And so I explain that in the introduction of the book, and then I, throughout the book, show how this black community managed to do amazing things even in the face of oppression. But I also wanted to make sure to keep an eye open for racial unity. And so the book also talks about how occasionally we could see glimmers of white people with consciences who objected to this Jim Crow system or who arose to do special service, to undertake special service for the black community. And that's why I started in 1869, because that was the era of the first white philanthropy support for black colleges in South Carolina. So there are a lot of themes going on in the book, Mm. but those are some of the major ones.
0: And you call it an intimate history.
1: Yeah. The publisher wanted to call it an intimate history. I was going to call it civil rights or something, but Mm -hmm. I had this wonderful acquisitions editor. It's published by the University of South Carolina Press, which is really coming out with quite a few titles on racial justice lately. So I was very pleased they accepted this book. But one of the reasons he said, he would suggest an intimate history is it's written from the perspective of my family and Uh. myself. And so when I'm referring to my grandfather and what he did, I say Grandpa Manning. And when I refer to my father and my mother and their work at the head of Claflin University, I call them dad and mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I only have maybe two chapters about that high school experience, but I do have some of those snippets of memoir from the 80s or 90s. And so they're almost like diary entries that are inserted into the tale about school desegregation. But it's also a history, so it's not a memoir. I went through, I think, probably about 20 archival collections. So, it's heavily footnoted, and you can read it without looking at the footnotes, but it's also heavily referenced enough that it could be used in a university classroom, which was my intended audience.
0: How did it relate to your becoming a Baha'i?
1: So, as I'm telling this tale of school desegregation, I occasionally insert reference to the Baha'i faith. For example, when I talk about the white segregationists who supported separate schools in the 1950s, I also insert some material, mostly from books by people like Louis Venters, about what was happening in the South Carolina Baha'i community. And then after I talk about this high school experience, near the end of that narrative, I think Tell this story about how I first heard about the Baha'i Faith coming out of a very bad experience of three years of racial harassment. So somehow I tell the story of how I became attracted to the Baha'i Faith. Even though it's a secular book, it's published by a university press. So I had to be careful about how much I said about that. I did explain that and describe that as one way I overcame the wounds of that very traumatic experience. And mm-hmm. then in the epilogue, I fully explain how I became a Baha'i, how I met my husband, our service, and the Baha'i faith. And I give a couple of incidents, one of which mentions the role of a Baha'i in Greenville.
0: June, would you like to read an excerpt from Struggling to Learn?
1: Yeah, so I thought I would read the part where I've described all of these very moving descriptions of what my classmates and I went through and then I talk about how it somewhat got better in 12th grade and then Right afterward, this is, this is what I say. Several important things happened in the summer of 1967, just before I entered Furman University as a freshman. I met a young SC State student, Steve Moore, who introduced me to two things, black activist literature, particularly the writings of Malcolm X and his own Baha'i faith, which I, a few years later, adopted as my own. This may seem a strange mixture, particularly since Malcolm X was a black separatist during his affiliation with the Nation of Islam, while the teachings of the Baha'is stress the unity of humanity and the need to live lives free of racial prejudice or exclusion. Actually, however, blending the two made a lot of sense at the time. You would have had to have known Steve to understand fully how this was possible. But also the atmosphere of the mid to late 60s supported many forms of Black student activism. The civil rights movement and Black urban rebellions were taking place at the same time. Some Black student activists used Black radical language would realize that the overall goal was to build a future society where race did not matter so much, a truth that both Dr. King and Malcolm X taught. Although the Baha'i faith supported only peaceful reform activities and counseled multiracial gatherings at all levels, it also urged its members to be at the forefront of progressive movements. My introduction to the Baha'i faith came as I stood outside of my church, Trinity, after yet another day of civil rights activism of some sort. Those rallies continued into 1967 and 1968. After the event, I started talking to Steve and happened to mention during the conversation that I was one of the students that had integrated our local high school. I asked Steve something like this. Why do you think white people in this city are so oppressive? Why is it that white teachers and students at my high school who call themselves Christian can treat us with such hate and refuse to talk to us or even to touch us? Steve responded that I should investigate the Baha'i faith. I'd never heard of it before. He told me that the Baha'i faith taught that all human beings were equal and that Baha'is did not allow segregated meetings of their members. Instead, he said, they followed guidance that both races needed to work toward unity and that white people would have to learn to give up their unconscious sense of superiority. Steve's words were extremely affecting I have been worried about religion for some time, wondering how my white Christian schoolmates could ever forsake their unchristian behavior and gain redemption.
0: I'm speaking with June Manning Thomas. She's the author of Struggling to Learn, An Intimate History of School Desegregation in South Carolina, and she just read an excerpt from the book. And as you said in the excerpt, you were one of the students that introduced desegregation in the high school. And something you said interested me. You said that in the 12th grade, it got better. Can you explain why or how it got better starting in the 12th grade?
1: Yeah, so the way school desegregation happened in the mid-60s in South Carolina, which had managed to avoid it since Brown v. Board of Education for a decade, was that parents filed lawsuits. So at first, it took a lot of courage and effort to get people to actually join the lawsuit. So my parents did that. But at first, there were only a limited number of us. So in my high school, only 13 of us ended up entering that first year. But then the NAACP and certain white allied organizations, such as the American Friends Service Committee, continued to recruit more and more Black families to try to further desegregate these schools. And they succeeded to the point of adding uh, maybe a couple of dozen the second year when I was in 11th grade, and then maybe a few more dozen in 12th grade. So what was happening was we were getting more and more Black students. We were less likely to be the only ones in our class. And simultaneously, the diehard segregationist white students were leaving for private schools or moving away from town to someplace that they considered to be sufficiently white. (laughs) And so that was somewhat of a relief. So that was for some of us desegregation pioneers that we were not quite so lonely and isolated and ostracized because there were more black students present. June, was it your
0: choice to go into this situation in 10th grade to desegregate your high school? And did you know what you were going to get into when you said yes?
1: Yeah, so the thing about the civil rights movement, which is why I finally decided to write a book about it, is in some of these small towns, really the whole town had civil rights fever, I mean, we were all <laughs> mm-hmm. we were all in these giant rallies. It, my church was the home church, and we came up with lists of demands and picket lines and marches. And there were lists of things that the NAACP and the other leaders saw as necessary to advance the cause of full integration into American society. And one of them was school desegregation. And so there were some of us that couldn't do some of the things. Like my parents wouldn't let me march in the picket line. When I was 12 or 13, I had classmates that were actually marching, and the police would come around with paddy wagons, and they'd round them all up and put them in jail. So I have 12, 13-year-old classmates that are going to jail. So it was clear that walking the picket line was enough to get you put in jail even if you were 12. So my parents knew I was very upset with them. I couldn't understand why I couldn't go to jail. You know that was that was a yeah, sign of, of honor. honor. Yeah. yeah, that was a sign of honor. And so I don't know if that was part of the reason I suspect also that because dad was friends with all of the NAACP leaders, that they were recruiting families that were a little independent in terms of their finances, for example, working at black colleges. But whatever reason, we only ended up with maybe two dozen families that were willing to send their children I saw it as a big adventure. Finally, I could do my part, you know? It was Mm -hmm. like finally my parents were stepping up to the plate. I was very proud of them, and I felt like we were going into this situation, but surely we would make friends, and surely we were releasing these poor white people from the yoke of segregation, so they could relax and be friends with us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it was a big shock to see how unified the hostility was, and it was a lasting lesson. It's one of the reasons I've continued to write about racial justice, and it's certainly a reason I was attracted to the Baha'i faith, because this was the big test of my adolescence to be put into this situation of daily harassment by people who were not going to accept people of color under any circumstances. But what a wonderful way to find the faith. I don't know if I would have been as interested in the Baha'i faith if I hadn't gone through that experience. and so strongly desired to find spiritual teachings that helped to change the world into a place that accepted all races, accepted everyone as a human being of equal status before God. I was thrown into the fire and this forced me to search for truth.
0: June, what do you think your life would have been like if you had not found the Baha'i Faith?
1: The Baha'i Faith and becoming embraced by the Baha'i Faith in my early 20s was a wonderful source of healing and confirmation. I did have some people in that class of 13 that ended up with some very difficult lives because of that trauma, But I think the Baha'i faith insulated me and welcomed me and allowed me to have a place in the world. I think I would have limped along somehow, but I would have been sorely crippled without the staff of the Baha'i faith.
0: So you're saying the Baha'i faith was a real healing and balm to the trauma that you experienced in 10th and 11th grade?
1: Yeah, 10th, mm-hmm. 11th, and 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And freshman year, I didn't describe that. but
0: <laughs> Oh, and ninth grade.
1: Ninth grade was in the public black high school. That, too, was the hotbed of civil rights support. And my freshman year, I was one of the first three women to desegregate Furman University, which was a southern white Baptist. So it had been desegregated in 65, but I went there in 1966 for a summer program, and then I entered in the fall of 1967. But I was searching for belonging in this larger society that had made sure I didn't belong, and my family and my friends didn't belong. I think there's no way to find that sense of belonging according to the Baha'i teachings except through spiritual means that we begin to overlook the distractions of skin color and national origin and ethnicity. If you're going to use the spiritual route to heal something like I suffered, then it should be with a religion that is not itself segregationist, and not itself saddled with a history of racial oppression, to come into the Baha'i faith, which from its origins had always taught that all races were equal, all human beings were equal before God, men and women were equal before God. This was so helpful as a way to soothe the wounded soul that I was, to read those writings The earth is but one country and mankind is citizens. To read those writings, to understand that the members of that faith community were bound by those writings was so different an experience from being a part of my wonderful Christian, Black Christian church, which was itself trying to recover from the trauma of racism. So, yes, the Baha'i faith was absolutely essential for my well-being.
0: June, I want to thank you for sharing your story and your work with us. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, you're
0: welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with June Manning Thomas, Centennial Professor Emerita of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. You can find the book she's written on her website, junemanningthomas.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website, abahaiperspective.com, and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website, baha'i.org, or call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: Pure
3: heart,
2: oh my God, oh my God, and renew a tranquil conscience within me, oh my hope, through the spirit. To the heaven of thy holiness, O source. Manifest of the manifest and the most hidden of the hidden, the most manifest of the manifest.